All right, welcome to Cinema Pod. I am your host, Benjamin Weingard, assistant professor at Hillsdale College, uh, returning after a week off with the ever hidden co host, <laughs> the ever diminishing co host. <laughs> yeah, relegated to not, not just co host on this podcast, but I've now taken over your other podcast. Right. It just I've, has to be humiliated. A lot of loss of status over the past few months. So today we're going to talk about the film Gone Baby Gone. I think we'll get into the weeds a bit on especially the core dilemma of the film. Yes, um, the moral dilemma is one of the more, it's it maybe what elevates it from sort of like being noir to high, high art. Agreed. Uh, so Gone Baby Gone directed by Ben Affleck. It was the first film that he directed and it was released in 2007. Affleck went on to direct uh, The Town, Argo. Uh, both Argo and The Town received positive reviews as did Gone Baby Gone. And then in 2016, he directed Live By Night, which uh, is similar to Gone Baby Gone in that it's a neo-noir type film, but it did not receive positive reviews. Yes. And we should note this was like part of the, uh, I, I guess you could call it the Aflac Renaissance because he, or, or the, yeah, because he, he got big with Goodwill Hunting, obviously. And then he went really big and was in like a bunch of blockbusters, Armageddon, for example. And then he was kind of dismissed as this, you know, sort of lightweight actor who was just playing the fame game whereas Matt Damon was seen as the serious actor who was picking good roles yes and and then Affleck came out with this and people were like whoa this guy's actually got talent right because this is of course a well-directed well-made film as we'll get into and and then his other films I think the town I haven't seen his last one, but I have seen The Town and I have seen Argo. I think Argo is good, but overrated. I think The Town is his best directed film. It's where like you can see he's upped his game since Gone Baby Gone, but it's not quite as interesting as Gone Baby Gone. Just the material's not. So would we say after the somewhat tepid showing as Batman in the uh, negatively received live by night that the renaissance has ended <laughs> it possibly has but i've heard that he's working on a script with damon again oh Perhaps. they're f they're filming oh yeah okay yeah that, that the last duel or kind of yeah, this that's me right. medieval movie that's right so per perhaps and also um he did Affleck. have a com comeback acting performance. Right, right, in The Way Back, which is actually his best acting performance. Um, so yes, agreed. He's a talented guy, obviously. So, yeah. Sort of troubled and, and com compelling and does a lot of stuff that is you know mediocre at best. But when he puts his mind to something, he is incredibly talented. Yes, he's a very intelligent uh, person, 
but he has so yeah some clear personality flaws that are not as evident in Matt Damon who he is yes. for obvious reasons compared with yes um so this is Gone also Baby- taken from a Dennis Lehine novel yeah so uh, yeah I was gonna note that so okay. the, the the film script is co-written by Ben Affleck and Aaron Stockard it's based on Gone Baby Gone the the Dennis Lehine book uh Lahine also wrote Mystic River right which of it, course turned into a Clint Eastwood directed uh widely praised in my view overrated, overrated film. yeah uh so Gone Baby Gone stars Amy Ryan Morgan Freeman Ed Harris Casey Affleck and Michelle Moynihan yeah and we should say I've read part of Gone Baby Gone I was never interested in reading the whole book I just wanted to see where it differed from the the movie, et cetera. And I, I found the book rather, the prose somewhat pedestrian and it was much more bloated. Uh, the intro, for example, the intro is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like the intro to Gone Baby Gone, which introduced it, which, which um, you know, it, it begins immediately with some of the interesting, maybe less apparent i mean they're obvious themes but they're they're less discussed because the the moral dilemma is the one that is the most sort of alarming at the end and that sticks with you uh, so i like i think the script is better than the book and the not and the the film is better than the book from what i can tell and if you're gonna make a film as they say take a mediocre novel right you, you right. don't want to film Anna Karenin or Crime and Punishment you want to do something that's kind of mediocre that you can tighten and improve upon which seems to be what Affleck and his co-writer did here so as we noted this is considered a, a neo-noir film so I'll just kind of give some background on that why neo-noir which just means new noir so film noir generally is considered to be the the these kind of uh, stylish Hollywood crime dramas uh, emphasizing cynical attitudes sexual motivations crime uh, cinema cinematically they're uh, they have kind of this German expressionist look to them uh, kind of what would we say like emphasizing low-key lighting shadow uh, use of shadows darkness chiaroscuro if you yeah. will um, yeah so uh, on on unbalanced compositions right yeah. unusual camera placement this kind of disorienting visual style disconcerting visual style yeah and i don't really think you don't really those features aren't really apparent in gone baby gone right so so i think what's important is this the classical film noir period runs from the 40s through the 50s and then you know some people would say the classical noir kind of ends with right around the touch of evil somewhere around there so uh, some of the classical film noir the Maltese Falcon uh, 1941 by John Huston double indemnity might be the most prototypical of all of the film noirs uh, directed by Billy Wilder in 1944, uh, many others out of the past, The Big Sleep and so on. The neo-noir is interesting because it's, again, it's just new noir, but most neo-noir films uh, 
toss aside the visuals of the classical noir while still focusing on some of the underlying themes and the the kind of sensibility of you know like a dark underworld a flawed protagonist cynicism well uh, one of the important things obviously is that you move from black and white filmmaking to colored filmmaking when you get into the neo-noir era which right. changes the way you shoot things and so you do still have david fincher for example if you look at seven which you might call a neo-noir or mm -hmm. the game or even um, zodiac they are very dark shadowy looking films but there's also something with the neo-noir you get what you might call the gritty genre of the neo-noir where you you go for instead of for this uh, more artistic and exaggerated world of shadows you go for this like quote-unquote realism of grittiness where you're just showing unvarnished reality clearly that's the gone baby gone uh, that was what influenced Ben Affleck's vision here is this, this attempt to depict reality and all of its uh, unvarnished glory. Yeah. And two of the more famous neo-noirs are Chinatown 1974 by Roman Polanski and The Long Goodbye 1973, Robert Altman. Yes. And The Long Goodbye has kind of humorous uh yeah that's a kind detached of post postmodern post it's a postmodern type whereas gone baby gone is definitely not it's a very yeah. a serious film yeah but. so so gone baby gone is is not uh, i mean you want it, it's a film on itself it's not a commentary on other films or right. a genre of film it just happens to explore a lot of themes that are considered noir like right although there is there is this this kind of um fast trash talking aspect to patrick kenzie who's the the detective here mm -hmm. that is clearly influenced by the uh humphrey bogart type detective and that we can talk about but you could argue is a bit out of place in the film um, so, so it's interesting that they that they do that, and there are two scenes in particular where Kenzie shoots off at the mouth. <laughs> yes, um, that uh, are I I think you could almost see them. The way I like to read it is as a homage to the film noirs, because then you can argue, you, you know, it makes sense of why it's in the film because it definitely departs from realism in those two scenes. Yeah, I agree. It, it's definitely an homage to like Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe. Right. right? And it is, it, it is a bit out of place. And he, he, you can, in these scenes, he speaks in fully formed paragraphs filled with witticism <laughs> yeah, very eloquent but full of curses but still very eloquent at the same time yeah so the the film uh filming took place in south boston and that's important because it it, it through and through it's a it's a boston film yeah uh, specifically it's it takes place in dorchester a, a neighborhood a, a relatively wor poor working class neighborhood near boston and 
Affleck thought it was important to make the film feel genuine and real. So he used a lot of extras who were actually just people walking around in the, the neighborhood and other actors and actresses were uh, not well known, but they were individuals who actually grew up in the Boston area. Yeah. So I, I think the area, this, this area of Boston is, really one of the characters of the film and in fact the film begins with a montage yeah. of it so it, it I mean it kind of illustrates right away that th this is one of the important parts about the film is understanding how life works in one of these poorer or I mean lower sort of lower middle class working neighborhoods yes uh so just lastly before we get into the film itself i'll note that it currently holds a 94 percent uh rotten tomatoes 7.6 at imbd and 72 out of 100 at metacritic and it as i noted it, it received mostly laudatory reviews uh it appeared on 65 critics top 10 lists mm -hmm. uh, of best film of 2007 which I, I looked back at this yesterday and just realized that 2007 was a pretty spectacular year yeah. for film. What did that have? Like, No Country, There yep. Will Be Blood. Yep. yep. Yeah. No Country, There Will Be Blood, Gone Baby Gone are the, the three that stuck out for me. I think Atonement, uh, oh, a few yeah. Yeah. other uh, films that are uh, definitely a year that holds up. Like, I, if somebody asked me what films were released in 2008, I, I can't name yeah so, so legitimate masterpieces or at least like compelling films that are still uh, interesting and in, in the sort of zeitgeist so as we noted it opens with this montage of the dorchester neighborhood where uh patrick kenzie uh, played by casey affleck is is narrating and he opens with the, I always believed it was the things you don't choose that makes you who you are, your city, your neighborhood, your family. People here take pride in these things like it was something that they had accomplished. And importantly, or interestingly, a very conservative message to begin the film, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there is, is no free will in, in right. this taking, world here. Taking, and also the, the idea that you take pride in things that you, you didn't have any control over, right? Uh, but also the, the way that this is shot, it lingers on what you might say are degenerate looking characters it, it really sets the um the atmosphere or sets the idea that this is a rough neighborhood with rough people that some of them you wouldn't want to meet in a in a dark alley at night right yes um, and uh, tattoo, lots of tattoos and obesity as well yep uh, and Ken Kenzie notes the city can be hard. Yes, he does. And then he's, he ends this opening narration with the, when I was young, I asked my priest how you could get to heaven and still protect yourself from all of the evil in the world. He told me what God said to his children. You are sheep among wolves, be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Yes. And that kicks into the intro where uh, we find out that Amanda McCready, who is a four-year-old girl, is missing, right? Yeah. And Amanda McCready's mother is Helene. 
who's a by Amy Ryan. Yeah, ter- terrific performance by yes. Amy Ryan. And as we'll see, she is a very troubled individual. Yes. And in this opening, we have uh, Patrick Kenzie is talking to his girlfriend, Angie Gennaro, yes. played by Michelle Moynihan. And I think uh, the Moynihan performance is the weakest performance of the major. I'm gonna make actors a, are, I'm, I'm gonna make a bold claim that I'm gonna defend later that actually Morgan Freeman's is the weakest performance. Okay. And and that Moynihan is the second weakest. And that but they are there, yes. I, I think Moynihan is in, in Freeman's case, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was Affleck made a bad bad decisions or what. But in Moynihan's case, I just think it's Moynihan's a mediocre actress. Yeah, she's a mediocre actress. And I would say the the part... The script doesn't help her out. Yeah, it's not a strong role, even though she is... And this is different from the novel, because in the novel, they solve... I think there are four of them, and they're much more equal in the novel, if you will, and they solve cases together here she ends up just kind of playing the foil. Yes. Right? And, and depicting a different uh, utilitarian. She's sort of the utilitarian worldview, right? She's the utilitarian worldview, but she's also an outsider in, in terms of this kind of lower class, seedy neighborhood. She doesn't fit in. She We find out she's like this woman who was popular at high school seems to I mean she's with Patrick but she seems to be someone who came from like a middle class type background well so this is what I think is interesting about the film upon this watching is that there's really a, a class dynamic running through it right and we don't really know much about Patrick's background, but we get the sense that he is pretty rough. I mean, he claims that he quit snorting coke. Yeah, we know he he snorted coke and right. he, he hung out with a lot of unsavory characters. Right, and also he seems to have more sympathy for them and to be less judgmental. There's especially the, the car scene, which we'll talk about, where you see this and, and like obviously Affleck, Ben Affleck, the director, makes quite a point of this that uh angie her view of helene is much more bleak and and judgmental than is patrick's yeah and and it's interesting this the sympathetic view that casey affleck's character patrick has of the like lower class or working class boston because that's a similar view that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote in Goodwill Hunting, right? Where yes. there's a, a very sympathetic portrayal of uh, the Boston working class. Right, but I would say importantly, it's it's not clear that it's not sympathetic here. Like Ben Affleck wisely goes out of his way to make it morally ambiguous and, and difficult to grapple with, right? I mean, it's not... It's not that you watch this and think, oh yeah, this is like a very sympathetic uh, uh, portrait of this neighborhood. It's, uh, it's rough and he goes out of his way to put in your face their bad behaviors. Yeah, I think it's, it's sympathetic 
um, but not romanticized. It's sympathetic okay. in that we're we're trying to do a three-dimensional portrayal of these people's lives sure. and, and not be judgmental in sure. how they're portrayed. So sure. So I mean, really the action kicks off when um B and Lionel McCready, who who Lionel McCready is Helene McCready's brother. Mm-hmm. Helene McCready is the one with the missing daughter. So Amanda's missing. Lionel and B come over to Patrick and, and Angie's apartment and they're trying to get them. And, and Patrick and Angie are private investigators who specialize in missing persons. So they're trying to get them to work on the case. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that Angie doesn't want to do it because she's worried about finding a dead or abused child and that she won't be able to handle it. Patrick seems to want to do it probably because he needs the money is the sense you get. He wants to take this and get the money. So then they go, they go over to um, Helene's apartment, Helene's apartment where Helene is sitting with Dottie. Yes. Who's who, who plays Dottie? Uh, Jill Quigley or something because she also knocks her role out of the park so you have this you have Dottie and and Helene sitting on the couch right yes and they're sort of acting as though everybody's trying to get their piece of them and that now they're they're getting attention and they're yelling at each other telling people to fuck off and and clearly and and when it in the interesting, I, I like the comment when 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 Patrick and Angie walk in, Dottie says to Angie, I remember you from high school. I see you're still a little conceited. Huh? Right, right. <laughs> like, so the, the, yes. Get your fucking attractive snooty bullshit out of here. Right. No, Patrick seems to to be able to do a better job immediately of talking to them. And there's but then they have some fights in there and then. Angie's like, let's leave. And so she clearly doesn't want to do it. They step aside and B and Lionel intervene and and B shows the picture of Amanda, which eventually pushes Angie to agree to do this. Before that, though, um, we learn that Helene drinks at the Fillmore, this bar every day. Uh, This is according to Lionel and that she does drugs, coke, at least a couple of times a week. And they also, Angie and Patrick go and look at Amanda's room, which is bereft of furniture and really disheveled and the walls are somewhat dilapidated. It just does not look like uh, well, the, there's the, a lot of love in this room. The kitchen is also, the, the sink is just full of dirty dishes yes. and, and quite disgusting. Lionel right. also says that they have the alcoholic gene he himself put the plug in the jug for what 23 years i think yeah so yeah so it's a it's a rough family it's pretty clear that helene's not the not going to win any awards for best mother of the year and we we get the sense that she's probably even doing more drugs than we hear about here they agree to do this. So you, you again, this is where I think just the Angie character is just kind of disappointing because she's here basically to be 
the foil that we root against because we want them to take the case, of course, because we, we want the movie to happen. And she finally agrees to it and we're like, oh, yay. So it's a little bit of false suspense or whatever you would say. I, I don't find it particularly compelling. But, but one thing that Angie's character does throughout the film that I think is interesting is she is clearly uncomfortable around yes. these types of people yeah, that's throughout true. the entire film. And yeah. we see that Patrick is much more at ease and comfortable and can relate to them. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, so while they're in uh, Amanda McCready's room, the captain of the, is it missing persons or missing children? Yeah, whatever of, the unit he started, he's yeah, the head he, of and started. Yeah, Jack this, Doyle. Jack Doyle, played by Morgan Freeman, and he lost his, his child was was took taken from him and and killed when she was very young, right? Yes. So we l learned this, and that's why he started this this unit. So well, he, so, yeah, yeah, here you for you get the the first of like Patrick Kenzie's that's cockiness, right? right? <laughs> Yeah, so um, Doyle comes in is and is immediately dismissive of Patrick. Right, he he's like, why why are you guys on this? You know, you're just gonna fuck things up. Basically, let the professionals handle this, right? Yep. And, and also he he's the one who gives the so the 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 novel starts out with these statistics about missing people in the movie he's the one who tells us the information about basically if you don't solve the case within 24 hours like 90 percent of the cases are never solved etc so he yeah. he lets us know how dire the situation is yes and this is where we again yeah we first have this kind of bravado from patrick uh because patrick says you know essentially look, I've been hired by a woman who's the victim of a crime and I'm entitled as her representative to be cooperated with uh, by the police department. So I expect right. to be. Right. And then Doyle just kind of has a smirk on, <laughs> he's like, what? All right, and you will be, right? Yeah, Fine. Wh whatever. But then he, he does this like, ah, uh, you know, uh, I don't care how it gets done. Uh, I just, I just want it to get done. Now, this is where, so part of my problem with this Freeman performance is that it's, it's just so kind of, it's almost like a caricature of his avuncular mm -hmm. persona. <laughs> and it just doesn't feel real throughout. That That's kind of my problem with it. And even here, it just kind of feels a bit I don't want to call it wooden. I just think it's like the wrong decision for this character. And, and I actually, I would have preferred the character to be a little bit more emotionally raw because that's almost how it seems as though it should be with the script because he acts very angry here, but you don't get the sense, you get the sense that this is a, a totally controlled character, right? Yes. So yeah. I just, I don't like, and I think if you compare this performance to Remy Brissant, played by uh, Ed Harris, that's a much more interesting performance, an emotionally volatile one, right? So Yeah, it's a more interesting performance. I, I agree with that. I think 
one thing that Freeman's doing with the Doyle character is he's he's at pains to to portray this this guy who's not doing this out of ego, right? Yes. Like that's one message that Doyle uh, will see like repeatedly tries to right. convey this. This is just about getting the job done. That's all I care about. Yes. It's not about me. It's not about you in particular. Right. But yeah. he could he could do that without the performance he chose, just with the dialogue, right? I mean, the dialogue's there, and and they it's something that runs throughout his conversation. So anyway, I mean, some people might defend his performance. That's fine. I I just found it a, a, a little bit uh, underwhelming, I will say. But whatever the case is, they then go to the bar. Right? Yeah, they go to the Fillmore's the where Fillmore. they discovered that uh Helene spends a lot of her nights right and they they uh Patrick finds this um or or he sees like one of his ex-friends or or still friends I guess you would say um and they start talking about Helene and the friend starts telling him that Helene was at the Fillmore doing a lot of bumps of cocaine the the time <laughs> the night her daughter went missing Yep. And it, they, they, that's where they first learn of um, Ray Lakansky, right? The, yeah, the Skinny Ray. Skinny Ray, who was doing rails with her. And then yes. this other guy at the bar who sort of looks like a like like the um, ugly brother of Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, I was going to say he looked like a roided up Kiefer Sutherland. Yes. <laughs> he, he starts looking at this guy and he's getting angry that this guy is giving information to um, Angie and Patrick. It's not clear why he's angry about this. And actually neither of these characters show up again. The, the bartender. Big Dave, the, the bartender. Dave, yeah. Or uh, yeah, this Lenny is the Sutherland right. looking guy. Right. So they talk, he starts talking shit to Patrick. Patrick starts talking shit back. Right. And then one thing we see is that when Patrick takes particular umbrage, when people disrespect Angie. Yes. yes so Lenny makes a comment about Angie's physical appearance and getting some and some fine pussy being in the bar tonight. Yes. And then as Patrick and Angie are walking out, Lenny says to Angie, you ever want to get fucked? Let me know. Yes. And Patrick hits him with his handgun and says, how's that motherfucker? Now, you know. <laughs> then then after that he points his gun at, at big dave and tells him to make him a fucking martini while he's walking out yeah so so <laughs> he he's he really gets riled up and he says make me a fucking martini you fat fucking retard right. so one thing that we can see here is that patrick is very uh conversant in the argo or patois of like these very <laughs> yes. rough working yes, class yeah. bars right or these these working class people who are casually racist and and like uh homophobic right uh, right a lot of their insults are about that or they just casually laugh about that um, yes. this is this is the first, so, and then they get out and the, I, I, I like what he does with the directing here. I, I think the directing throughout is 
solid to far above average, not quite great yet. So you could say like, the thing that might keep this from being a masterpiece is really the limitation of Affleck's vision. It's just mm -hmm. not quite there yet, but it's pretty good. And there are some things that deserve praise. I think he does this when they get out of the bar, you, you have an arc shot, like adding to the disorientation that you feel as the view viewer that Patrick feels after he got amped up in this bar. But I think you, you, it's just worth asking the question, is this a necessary scene or is this this route that they chose to take with this character where he's talking shit all the time mm -hmm. and the, the sort of depravity of the characters is really amped up, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, uh, I, I personally think that it adds to the film. It's, it's not realism. It's no, it's not. It's more not. That's right. like... Patrick is this throwback, like updated Sam Spade figure who's right. silver tongued and quick witted yeah. and very good at navigating the kind of quote unquote underworld. Like that's yeah. what makes him a good private investigator. I can buy I, I can buy that that argument. I wonder I wonder if it would have been better if they just went more for gritty realism throughout, though. That, that I think that's a debatable point, at least. Uh, if they had, I mean, it's almost as if Affleck tries too hard to make sure you realize how seedy this world is. And then on top of that, he makes Patrick in these kinds of scenes, like, unrealistic in a way that I, I, I do wonder if it just kind of detracts from the emotional effect of some of the rest of the film. Now, I, I, I'm open to the debate there. I can see your point. And there is something just like enjoyable about watching him engage in his uh, repartees. So, I, I mean, I, I grant that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that Affleck uh, enjoyed writing this kind of witty <laughs> yes. dialogue, right? As, yeah. as Damon and Affleck did with Goodwill Hunting. Yes, right. right. So, um, yeah, so whether you ultimately like this idea, this kind of throwback to these these characters, uh, you can decide that. But clearly, Patrick has that. Although it's interesting that uh, the other major protagonists have are much more realistic in how they behave and how they talk, right? right. Like Brissot and um, Doyle. Right, but the thing that makes this so weird and jarring to me is you have this Angie, who's clearly like, kind of like what you would have called a prep in high school. Right? Yes, yeah. And she's support, you know, supposedly, or, or I mean, acts as though she's a bit repulsed by what she's seen. But yet they get into these situations, like you were just in a bar in which they locked the door and were threatening to rape you and to beat the shit out of your boyfriend who had to pull a gun. And then after he pulled a gun, he smacked somebody in the face with his gun, broke out his teeth and pointed it at the bartender and told him to make a martini. And you get out of that and you're just like, okay, let's go on with the rest of our investigation. <laughs> it's just, you know, and then there's the other scene, which we'll get to obviously where he talks to Cheese, which is also like this. It's just, it's, I don't know. It, it, it is jarring because it's so implausible, obviously, that it, it 
almost doesn't fit with the rest of the film, which does aim for a kind of realism. Yeah, you you wonder what kind of cases they worked on together in the past, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's right. I mean, it, but they but they make the point of acting as though they never really worked on. I mean, they just worked to find missing people who had skipped out on payments or something. Right. Like At this, any rate, yes. that's a debate that can run throughout the film. They meet these police officers now. Yeah. Right? So we're um, introduced to uh, Nick and Remy Brisson. Right. And and clearly Remy is not impressed with the detectives. Um, he's he's supposed to meet with them to share information because Jack Doyle told them to right. as some kind of courtesy. Brissant's an interesting character, too, because we find out that he's from New Orleans, but he's been in the area for, as he says, longer than you've been alive or longer than you know, before you were born. So who's really more from this area, right? So there's, yes. there is, again, this sort of class dynamic. Are you an authentic person from this Boston narrative or uh, uh, this Boston area or not? Yes. So in, at any rate, they, they talk to them and they're basically like, there's this one lead they talk about, which will show up later with this, this husband and wife or a couple. Yeah, so... And, Leon and Roberta Trent, who are uh, basically just these derelict coke users, but just absolutely depraved. Uh, <laughs> and then the uh, the quote unquote diddler or pedophile who is uh, named Corwin Earl, and Brissant says they have some kind of Adams family type thing going on. Right, and then. Then it's basically like that's all you've got in three days or whatever and yep. they're like we've got all of these leads we've got psychic psychics telling us bullshit or whatever and he's kind of angry about it and then patrick's like i bet you've heard of ray lukinski then and they're like no you know who's ray or whatever and uh importantly brissat says he doesn't know who ray is yes, right he, that's he, right so this is an important point because it comes up later. So he doesn't know who Ray Lukinsky is. Patrick tells him about Ray and tells him that Helene was doing bumps of coke with Ray on the night. And, and then Remy, yeah, Remy and Nick act utterly shocked that Helene lied to them. Yes, which is right. obviously bizarre. And they're like, we're going to go over there now and just like bust her up. Mm -hmm. So they go there. And they do rip her up. And there's a lot of Ed Harris giving a sort of a pyrotechnic performance of a volatile, <laughs> this kind <laughs> of volatile police officer who's getting pissed off at Helene for being so irresponsible and for lying. Well, and before, before uh, Remy and Nick go to talk to Helene uh, again, we... We have Patrick and Angie see Bubba, who's also one of Patrick's old friends. Oh yeah, that's right. So and yes. and Bubba is a a unscrupulous drug dealer who likes to say that he's the king of the jungle and he right. doesn't he doesn't fuck around with stupid drug deals. He's he's smart, intelligent, and he tells uh, um, Patrick and Angie that Skinny Ray works for Cheese. 
And this crew that includes Chris Mullen is another person right. on the crew. Right. And he'll he'll be important because so they basically say if you if you see these people or know any information about this, and then that'll come up later. So yeah, and then they they have the scene where Brissat and his partner are ripping into Helene, and Helene ends up telling them that. So she, how does how this work? So, Basically, she and and Ray ripped off money from Cheese mm-hmm. because they were they were basically coke mules yeah, for they were, Cheese. Yeah, that's right. Right, and they they realize the cops busted people on this this one trip, and they thought, you know, I think it was Ray who said, you know, the cops or Cheese will think the cops have the money. Right. So they decide to take the money. Yep. And it's not just a, a small amount of money. No, it's it's $130,000. And, and we get some casual, it tells us what kind of uh, uh, people we're dealing with or how they grew up or rough that she says, uh, I think this is where Helene says, suck a blank dick or cock to be uh, the n-word so again yes. just like this kind of casual racism and how rude and mean they are to each other and actually she says does is this where she insults b for being barren i think so yeah right she, so yeah yes. so and so she b- also helene uh we find out that when she was doing this drug run with Ray for Cheese's crew, she had Amanda with right. her. That's right. So she right. brought Amanda with her. And, and she is- said she complains about how hard it is to be a mother and raise a child. Right. right. So and her that- solution uh, to this quandary is just to bring her child on drug runs with her. Right. And it's weird because you almost get the sense that this could be played for because she the way she delivers these lines is actually a little bit moving where she's like it's hard to be a single mother I don't I can't afford these things but again wisely Ben Affleck is is showing you both like every every time you almost sympathize with her he shows you also how how rough and in 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 many ways um immoral how much of a bad mother she is at the same time so he doesn't really let you sympathize too much horrible mother and also her protestations about how hard it is to be a mother ring extremely hollow considering that uh, Lionel and B would be more than willing to help her out right I agree with that but Amy Ryan is is selling these lines as something you should you should sympathize with so you can see how you could and yeah that's right if Ben made different decisions he could have amped up the sympathy for this character but he did not he chose not to which I think is a good choice so any at any rate they they decide they're going to they think obviously Cheese took Amanda to get his money back. It's a like pretty straightforward thing here. So they're gonna go up and talk to Ray. And Remy I, I says, just, "I I, I want to know one detail because this will be important at the end." So when Amanda went missing, it was uh, publicized on the news that Amanda had this favorite doll that she always had with her. Right. And the mother Helene gave this information that the doll's name was Mirabelle. 
just yes. put a pin in that because it's it will be important but we'll just note that before i forget yes okay. so yes so, so yeah they're they're gonna go to ray's uh remy says you take her in the car i can't even stand to be in the car with her to right. patrick so th this you get this trip with patrick angie and helene and helene's sitting in the back seat and Patrick is trying to talk with her about this guy that she used to date, et cetera, and about their high school years, because Patrick, I think, was a freshman when she was a senior. Yep. And you can see that they are from the same class. So yep. they, they can talk to each other and they casually use the word faggot and make fun of things. And she's, she's like, you know, uh, he's a faggot now. And um, Patrick's like he was kind of a faggot then and they're sort of laughing and getting along with each other and you can see that Angie's sort of disgusted about it and yes. can't really relate to any of this and in fact she gets angry because Helene didn't tell anybody about this and didn't go to cheese and, and Helene's like mocking her like what am I gonna do go, go to cheese and try to make some deal or something right so we get more more of Patrick can relate to her and can be friendly with her and Angie finds her just despicable loathsome and cannot yeah so Angie is very uh, aloof here right yes she just doesn't belong in this this world yes uh, so when they get to Skinny Ray's, we see that Skinny Ray has been brutally murdered. Right. And and Affleck, in keeping with what he does throughout this film, shows you the grisly, the grisly torture in exquisite detail. We come with close-ups mm -hmm. on like even his bloodied hands, I think, and then his face. Um, and interestingly, I noticed this throughout there's a lot of the editing's interesting in this film quite well edited and you don't get the traditional master medium close-up often the edit works from close-up out yeah close I, don't, up I don't know out, if you noticed that but close-up out and a lot of use of uh montage yes but uh, but, but flashback uh, yeah but a, a lot of a lot of now the editing i will say the the middle part where it transitions is terrible and that's no, like i, I huge, disagree okay well we'll we'll debate that then okay. but i think that's a serious flaw uh but the the editing in in general i i i quite liked uh you could say there maybe there are a few pacing issues but just in the in the sort of micro the editing is interesting and it's interesting that it does go from close-ups out quite often and it does in this scene and also it sticks with the sort of grisliness of the film affleck's going to show you this depraved world and all of its its grisliness right yes um so yeah, helene so, walks in uh well i think remy says something remy, so this shows you how hard of a cop remy is right because he's just kind of looking at it and laughing yeah and yeah. <laughs> And they're one, very hard boiled. Right. And at some point he, he, you know, they're talking about, well, what happened And Patrick saying, well, he couldn't tell them where the money was because he didn't know. That's right. Because we find out that Helene hid it. And then Remy sort of chuckles and says, Ray made poor relationship choices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're very worldly and cynical and hard boiled. Right. Um, they're inured to this kind of violence. Yeah, so Helene w walks in and sees that, that skinny Ray is dead and she freaks out. 
uh, understandably and, and goes out in the yard and she says, I, I don't give a shit about the money anymore. Uh, let's the officers and Patrick know that it, the, the 130,000 actually is just buried in the yard right there. Right. And this so, is, this is where you, you feel the most sympathy for Helene's character, right? Where they yes. build up the most for it. Cause she's, she's starting to talk about how, Amanda was hungry before or said she was hungry before she went to bed or those were the last words Amanda said to her and when they get they drive back there's no dialogue there but then she starts crying she's very upset she says she'll stop using drugs just Mm -hmm. get Amanda and makes Patrick promise that they'll get Amanda yeah so interestingly right before they drive back from Skinny Ray's uh Angie makes the comment that maybe they should get the FBI involved. And it's just notable that Remy and Nick are both very much against the that, FBI yes. becoming involved in that, this. Now, that's a clue to what's yes. happening. That is called foreshadowing. Sight. Yes. It was not even foreshadowing, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is, yeah. It, so, but but it's a clue to what's happening in plain sight, but it doesn't mean anything until you know what's actually happening. So right, and then we, we get this, uh, when they get back, the, the very poignant emotional scene between uh, Patrick and Helene, where Helene says, you know, I know I fucked up. I just want my daughter back. You know, she's crying. She's very, uh, doing a great job with the, the acting. And then Patrick promises her right that he will get her daughter back for her right so i mean it goes we've already said this a couple of times but it is the case that amy ryan's performance is just spectacular clearly the best performance in the film i mean i think truly award-worthy especially if you've seen amy ryan in other films uh, or she was in the wire season two for example um this is not like Amy Ryan playing Amy Ryan at all. This is a completely different character from other characters. And it's a very believable and well done character. That's right. Um, so, so yeah, so th- this is when it basically, um, yeah, we get to night or whatever, but then the, the, the next important thing that happens is when they, they meet up with the, Remy and Nick to go to cheeses. Now, here's another thing for people who are interested in this, where the editing's interesting. There are a couple J edits and interesting Mm -hmm. edits with the audio where they're actually playing the audio of what happened well before while we're looking at a scene, say the scenes from the present, the audios from 10 minutes before or something. And it's the audio is what's catching us up to the visual right? right and it's allowing them to condense the right, time. time in the yeah. film and yes. explain because it's a reasonably convoluted plot yes right? it's raymond chandler ask one would say so they're going to they talk to remy and nick and basically say they can handle this don't you know they don't want remy and nick to do it they're gonna go in patrick knows cheese's brother better but does know cheese a bit Mm-hmm. So they go in. Cheese is played by cheese. Cheese is cheese. Jean Baptiste, a yes. Haitian, 
gangster sociopathic Haitian gangsta as Brissant says and he is played with glee by uh, I think it was a rapper who played him uh, he but this is another one of the scenes where Patrick shoots off at the mouth in a way that you, you can say is unbelievable because it, they're talking to each other um, and they tell they tell cheese that they have the money right cheese is looking for and they they know that cheese and his crew killed skinny ray but they don't really care nobody cares about that all they want is amanda back right and And then it's angry at this because he's like i don't fuck around with kids like you know if ray got his that's fine because life is quote a motherfucker yes and specifically and this gives us the the title of the movie cheese says some other motherfuckers let fool rob on them i don't play scrimmage but i don't fuck with no kids and if that girl only hope is you, will I pray for her? Cause she's gone, baby, gone. Right. And then, so he, yeah, so he, the ver- verbal jousting that's funny and like very slang ridden here. And then he gets, he, he wants to see uh, if they have a wire. So he makes Patrick and then Angie lift up their shirts. And this is what pisses off Patrick because yes. he he's basically like, if you disrespect my girl <laughs> again, and then he goes on saying what he's going to do. Yeah, and he also he, says- He says she, he's gonna, I'm gonna pull your fucking card. Right, and he says if Cheese is lying about not having the girl, he's going to spend all of the money to fuck Cheese over. And he yes. goes through this, <laughs> this eloquent, uh, uh, list all of, of the of things he's gonna he's bribe going to cops do. to go yes. after him tell other uh, gangsters that cheese is a ci and a rat right and then he ends it by saying you're basically going to get cornholed by a bunch of crackers quote in, unquote yes yes quote unquote <laughs> in in prison because from what i heard you guys that get sent up concord for killing kids life a motherfucker right so he uses his words back to him yeah so it's very it's just this uh old school uh uh, macho showdown (laughs) between two uh kind of dudes trying to out uh outsmart not just outsmart each other but just show who's the bigger man here yeah it's a kind of verbal territorial pissing right but it's it's again it's completely implausible because at this point cheese who looks sociopathic yeah. has, has pulled a gun out before this so patrick's talking shit to a guy who has a gun at least at one point pointed at him but it's certainly like quite available uh, again you could argue and i think it's a reasonable debate would the film be better if you caught this kind of incredibly implausible verbal jousting and just made it more realistic maybe maybe not i mean it's entertaining the dialogue is for sure but i i think it might be a better film without it yeah i i i think it's entertaining i think it adds something to the film again just okay you have to take it that this isn't realism here. Yes, it is, is definitely not. Uh, I do like how Cheese says, if you come in like that again, or if I see you again, I'm going to get discourteous. discourteous. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so yeah, so they they finish their meeting with cheese. They go out and they um, they tell Remy or whatever that they didn't get the, they didn't get any deal with cheese. And Remy basically is like, um, you know, you're gonna blame yourself from this. How did you fuck this up, etc. Um, yes. So then, so Patrick think I mean uh, the key here is that Patrick thinks he fucked the deal up. Right. right. So he, they still think Cheese probably has Amanda. Yeah, but right. he was unable to get Cheese to crack. And so he feels some some guilt. And Remy lets him know, especially if that child winds up dead, right? You'll right. never forgive yourself for that. Right. And so then we see them next, I think, in Jack's um, Jack Doyle's office. No, right? it's the, the next morning, actually. Uh, Remy calls... Uh, Angie, she takes the call and he says that Cheese wants to make the deal. Uh, so yes, yeah, Remy lets it lets them know uh, Cheese wants to make the deal, but yes. importantly, when Cheese he says when Cheese called into the the police department, they have the they got the the recorded transcript and Jack right. Doyle looked That's at right. it. Yeah. So now all all of them are in trouble because they got the hundred and thirty thousand dollars. They didn't let Jack know that. They kind right. of went rogue. Right. That's yeah. why then when we see them in the office, Jack acts as though he's pissed off about this because he's been introduced into this conspiracy that he didn't consent to. That's right. And then, so, but he's going to go along with it because he claims this is the best for the kid. Yeah, and again, this is one of these scenes where he's trying to convey this, like, it's not about me. I don't care. Right. I just want to get the child back and, and you guys forced my hand. So I, you're goddamn right. I'm involved in this now. Right, and that's why the, it's important. It's also important, and this comes up later, that he reads this supposed transcript from uh, of the phone call between Cheese and uh, Remy. And I actually think they purposely make the dialogue a bit like unbelievable if you pay attention to it when you know it because the way they have cheese talk it's almost like a caricature of a gangster yes. like yeah. you have my money fool <laughs> yes that's um, right so yeah this this becomes more important later but anyway doyle chastises them but then it's basically like i'm in on this because this is the the right thing to do to get amanda and that's what yes. he cares about so and they're so going they're to meet at this abandoned quarry yeah. where they'll have this exchange. You know, uh, they they'll, they'll split up. You know, give Cheese the money. Cheese gives them Amanda, and everything's all good. That's kind of the idea we get going into this, right? So, I mean, obviously, it's pretty implausible that police officers would go rogue like this. That <laughs> they would go along with this, but whatever it works for the film so they meet up with them at this place uh angie says it doesn't feel right here right like they're gonna kill her that's what she thinks so yes. they go up and then they split up so it's um, uh angie and patrick are together and remy and his partner are together and angie and patrick are supposed to get amanda then we here's shooting and then it's a bunch of running and it's directed in such a way that it's very disoriented yeah, it's disorienting. disorienting 
chaotic pov shot like of running through these dark shaky camera yeah and then we get to they they meet up with uh i think remy and nick and and they had heard a splash i guess and they ask what happened and they explained that it went wrong and they just heard this splash or she just fell over or something yeah and when we look down into the water from uh, atop the quarry you see the doll mirabelle floating on the top of the water and angie runs and jumps off of the cliff into the water below yes and doesn't come up with anything Right. because we cu- we look at that for a while from like this bird's eye shot that is it was quite a cool shot where the the little doll where where uh, Angie is is in the bottom right corner uh, but then we we cut to a hospital mm-hmm. right where Angie is sitting on a bed or like looks like she has bandages on a bruise on her leg but says she's going to be okay yeah, and, um, and she, she asks Patrick, or she says kind of uh, plaintively, maybe Amanda's still alive, maybe she's holding on somewhere, and then Patrick says, I, I, I don't think, think so. so. Right. And then this is when we get the dialogue to the, the transition. narration again. Yes, yeah. to, to the, the narration, excuse me, to, to get into the second part of the film. And this is what I, I would criticize this as being sloppy, structure there there had to have been a way to make this film that didn't require this kind of a transition here well that would be my argument okay so to set up the the transition patrick does this narration and he says and like that she was gone gives some more details and then he says i i couldn't stop running it over and over and over in my mind the vague and distant suspicion that we never understood what happened that night, what our role was, or maybe it was just that like hundreds of other children who disappear each year and never return. Amanda was even more haunting for never being found. Right. And then- so this is the bookend to the first half of the film. Now I would say they use the narrative structure of vertigo, right? where you have these basically these two almost like self-contained films that have this split right in the middle. And the first half of the film is this noir, this kind of chaotic noir where Patrick and Angie are hired on false premises and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And it's very murky and uh, a chaotic. We're introduced to all these characters. You feel somewhat out of sorts as the viewer and then in the second half it's just this obsession that patrick has that keeps him going and becomes more personal for him Uh, that's i mean i i mean i like that i like the the comparison but it's not even really what happens because patrick isn't necessarily obsessed he gets uh invited by bubba to go to this house with this, where they find like this guy with the the medallion from this new missing kid. That's right. I, but the the reason he goes in and gets the courage to not just stay in the car is because he is still obsessed by this. Well, he case. still he still cares. I agree. Yeah, he's now, still haunted by what it. What I wonder is if there 
if there were, it, it, is there a way that you could make this film and actually show 10, 15 minutes of the, he's haunted by this? Because you don't get that from this, right? You get, you just get this narration. It tells you that Doyle retired. He took all of the blame for that. He insisted upon taking all of the blame for what happened. He retired. Uh, Chris got killed, etc. So we we were told what happened. Angie here. still cries about. Angie case. cries and Angie. Their relationship is clearly their relationship is not going yeah. well. Um, and we also are told about this Johnny Pietro kid who's yes. missing. And we're told about this medallion that he had. Yes, the seven-year-old seven boy, yeah. Right, the seven-year-old boy was important because this is what propels the second part, the second half of the plot, at least for a little bit. I think it would have been better if you, if they could have, if Affleck could have, or the scriptwriter could have, figured out a way to put 10 minutes here where we see Patrick like obsessed with this or not being able to let it go or doing something. I don't know how you would do that exactly. I just think it, it just feels jarring when you're watching it. It feels almost half-assed. Like you had something here and you just couldn't figure it out. So you're like, eh, we'll just do narration. Yeah. I mean, but you started the film with narration. Yeah. But starting the, starting a film with narration you know, it, it feels much less, uh, what do you want to say? It's, it's less conspicuous or something. It's like, okay, you started, the narrator is going to tell us something about what we're doing, where we are. I mean, you don't even need the narration. You could cut the narration from the start. I like it. But when you're doing the narration like here, it seems as though it's a failure of writing. It's the easy way out. And it just seems a bit jarring. And, and generally speaking, not always, I would say generally speaking, narration is, it's, you would like to avoid it. And it's interesting because for example, Blade Runner had narration put in, which is a neo-noir sci-fi film. Uh, yeah. It had narration put in, which Harrison Ford was very angry about, and which Ridley Scott fought against. And it does make the movie worse, although it makes it easier to understand because you can watch it without the narration. And it's actually, I think, better without the narration. Okay, so so noir and films often use narration. I agree. They, tool. And furthermore, they do. The, this narration here but th this film only uses it, narration twice yes, it uses but, it at but the beginning and here this narration it doesn't make things more understandable no i in agree fact patrick's it. narration is precisely it, it's like we couldn't fake i i have no idea what i was a part of here i he he thought he was figuring shit out and then it just collapsed right, but it tells and doesn't show that's that's the thing right it tells you what happened in the aftermath of this and yeah, yeah and I, I just I think if you can show and not tell generally that's the better option I, I like the the vertigo angle okay so that fair enough I, I find it a little jarry it feels kind of lazy I would rather they show me it because when we get back into this it takes me a while to get back into the narrative it feels as though I'm entering like a new movie yeah, and they, yeah. they kind of tried to half-ass connect it. 
but it doesn't it's not even vertigo there's a reason for that it the the setup like that the structure makes more sense to me in vertigo than it does here because this isn't like a new narrative it's continuing the narrative the yes the the second half of the film is where all of these clues and characters and the dialogue that's preceded starts to make sense and come together right yeah I, I it bears fruit and i think yes, having but... it almost as two separate films i think that works well with this setting this up but it's basically like the big sleep where you can't follow any of the narrative and okay. then the second half where it's more i th i think it's it has more of a personal feel right in the second half it's more about these individual characters and individual and specifically a, a couple of important choices by patrick sure but i i mean i guess i would say i don't see the justification for this to me it feels lazy and and maybe as though they 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 might have had something there and they cut it for time and condensed it and had narration over it or i think that's accurate i think they probably had like 20 or 30 minutes of scenery or of, of sh shots that they and just turned cut it into out. a montage and narrated over it i mean whatever yeah. it you know it, it's not a. a I, I think it's bad, but it's not a, it's not a ruinous sin or anything. It's, it's an interesting decision. Yeah, I mean, okay, so it's debatable at least. We we apparently don't agree on it. But the important thing is that we get um, this information about this kid who's missing that, yeah, that he, the media care about now. Right, he's the new big media story. Right, it was that. Amanda, now it's Johnny Pietro, who was uh, went missing and was last seen wearing this medallion of St. Christopher. Right, and Bubba meets Patrick and tells him that he's got this trip that he wants Patrick to go on. Now, this is also something that you get in movies that never happens in real life, which I dislike, which is, dude, I have to show you something, but I'm not going to tell you what we're doing. And the person's like, okay, I'll go with you. I mean, why yes. wouldn't Patrick or why wouldn't Bubba just say, hey, I thought I think I found those people. Will you come with me and we can sort this out? It's also the, the first time that Patrick doesn't understand the Argo of the underworld because uh, Bubba tells him to get his toast. And Patrick's like, toast, what are you talking about? He's like, you're gone, motherfucker. Yeah, 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 right. Pack the heat, man. So Patrick goes with them and it's it turns out that he's going to do this coke deal. And it's these two, what were their, I forget their names. The Trats, uh, yes. uh, Leon and Roberta. With the pedophile kid who might be there. Yes. Um, and so Patrick decides to come in with him. And this is an, uh, another one of those scenes which is even worse the next time they go into the house as just showing you this lurid underworld, um, this coked out, crazy looking, unwashed, unkempt dude who answers the door and Bubba just like busts his way into the house and it's like looking around. Patrick goes in with him and he gives a little bit of coke to this guy whose wife then comes in. His wife is this morbidly obese, very unpleasant looking yeah, woman very... who wants some of the cocaine, right? Um, yeah. So they're basically just like these absolute coke fiends. 
and Bubba's giving them shit, having Patrick count the money, right? And he's kind of looking around, and the woman's getting angry about that, getting suspicious or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then finally they, they go out into the hallway, and I believe that's when he sees the pedophile, or is that when they're leaving? Anyway, she pulls a gun on him, too. Yes, she pulls Bubba. a gun on, on Bubba. Um, right. And then uh, Bubba tells Patrick to shoot the bitch. Right. Patrick pulls his gun and puts it on the back of her head, but does not shoot her. Yes. And then we see, like, Patrick looks up and sees Corwin upstairs. Yes. Over the railing. And Corwin... With the medallion. With the medallion, and Corwin is a, uh, I mean, he he looks as though he's missing a chromosome, right? Yes. Like he's 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 mentally retarded. He yes. uh, he has this shirt that that's too small, it, like only comes down to his belly button. Just a very disturbing looking individual. Yeah, this is a disturbing uh, underworld that you you don't want to believe exists right 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 um, yes so they, yeah. they they leave and then we get uh remy and nick are meeting up with patrick talking about what he saw and he's and he's like are we gonna wait for swat mm -hmm. and and remy's like you saw this medallion did you right. not like and Pat it? patrick importantly does not confirm that he saw the medallion he says i definitely saw corwin Earl. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then Remy just says, "We're not waiting. Fuck yeah, it. We're, we're going not waiting. in." And this, no, this. I think this is this whole scene is very well directed and yes. and, and and very uh, compelling. So Nick, Remy's going to the back. Nick is going to the front, and we hear like three shots, and then it goes silent. Like the uh, the the soundtrack goes silent, and it just is like it really puts you into this disoriented sort of world where this guy's been shot, he's holding his neck, he, he falls over eventually on the ground and um, Patrick runs toward him to try to get help, calls, yes. calls the, the backups. It's, says, it's quite graphic. There's, there's yes. blood just squirting from this guy's neck. He's clearly yes. like uh, uh, definitely uh, quite, quite injured. Yes. And um, he, I, I would say like the, the way he acted in this scene is very compelling. <laughs> um, and then Patrick is go goes in. Now this is where you could say again, like, I, I'm not going in. This guy just got shot. He's a cop. Patrick decides to go in though. Yes. And, and upon entering, he finds the the old man is dead and has right. a bullet hole through his chest. Yes. And and I couldn't figure out what happened. I guess is the idea Remy shot him from outside. Yeah. I mean, I, because I, Patrick's shooting, but it's, you know, he doesn't know what he's even shooting at. Right. So it's it's unclear exactly who shot the old man, but he's right. dead. Yeah. And then Patrick goes upstairs. Yes. And this and is a just very disturbing uh, scene upstairs where we yeah. have Corwin Earl crouched on the floor saying it was an accident, basically muttering 
it was an accident. Patrick goes into a bathroom and there's in the it's this is a just dank, dirty, dilapidated bathroom in the sink. We see uh, there's water and bloody underwear. Yes. And then he looks in the bathtub and we just see like the face of Johnny Pietro, who's clearly been dead for a little while. Right. Then Patrick immediately hurls. Yes. And we get this very effective editing. That's like a pulsating editing where we go black. Then we come up to something. Then we go black again. It's very, again, it's disorienting. Yep. It's, it feels as though we're like, we're in the, the head of Patrick and we're angry. We're confused. We're upset. And he, he goes and he assassinates Corwin. Yes, he points he, his gun to the back of his head. Shoots Corwin him point says, blank and wait or something, and then yeah. just shoots him. And then he, you know, he makes his way toward the door. Remy shoots the 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 woman, and then they go outside. Yes, and then they're giving they're giving statements. Um, yes, and then Patrick goes to see Nick in the hospital. Right, and he's visited by Angie. Right, so we get this shot. Affleck going for the obvious here, perhaps, but I still like the shot where Patrick is staring at this kind of like window that ends up reflecting his shadow back to him, clearly depicting the the duality of Patrick and and he's grappling with what he's done and trying to, uh, he's grappling morally with what has happened and he's worried that he did the wrong thing, or at least he's not sure about what he did and, and right. if it was right. And Angie is very happy. Not, I wouldn't say happy is probably not the right word, but she's, she's she tells him she's proud of him. Yes. She, she says, they, they told me what happened. I'm proud of you. That man killed a child. He had no right to live. Yeah, and you, this is, you did what you had to do. This is again. This is where, like, I feel as though Angie's just here for for moral narrative purposes because this just seems like a very implausible thing for somebody yes. to say to her boyfriend in this situation. It just <laughs> well, that's that's unrealistic. But also, it's the idea that these police officers are telling Angie, yeah, we're not going to file this report, but here's what actually happened. Patrick actually assassinated this pedophile. Yes, it's just, it doesn't, uh, it, it, yeah, it doesn't strike as realistic. I, I do wonder if you had a better actress here, would this scene had, would this have seen a bit more compelling? Because yeah, Moynihan just can't, the way she delivers these lines, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of almost like upbeat, like, yeah, I'm proud of you. You shot him. You had no right to live. No, no qualms about what she's saying. No concerns about it whatsoever. There's no, she doesn't bring any immediacy or gravity to right. the dialogue. I, I it's kind of superficial. What if you put like Michelle Williams or something in this role, right? Well, if you put Michelle Williams in any role, it's going to be good. <laughs> yes, that, that is true. That is, that is a fact. Uh, so then we have Patrick says he's going to stay here for a while. So Angie leaves and then he's, 
he's drinking with Remy Brissat. Remy Brissat at this point is drunk, drinking from a, a bottle, some, some kind of he's bottle. Dr- he's drinking bag. some rum from a bag. And yes. we can see that Patrick is clearly wrestling with his decision. Uh, he tells Remy, my priest says, shame is God telling you what you did was wrong. Remy says, fuck him. And then Patrick says, murder's a sin. Remy says, depends on who you do it to. Right. Now, this is so this is important because it's setting up the uh, what you, you would say the deontological versus the utilitarian moral framework. So, the right. deontological framework is there are just these kinds of rules that you have to follow regardless yes. of the consequences. Yes. Utilitarianism, on the other hand, is a consequentialist philosophy that says, you know, you have to take into account what happens with your act. So it, it, if it leads to better, better results, even if it might seem immoral, the act itself, it is moral. Yes. And that's the dilemma that we're confronted and will be confronted with later. And Patrick seems to be moving toward the deontological view that yes, was, that, that perhaps is informed wrong. by his Catholicism. Right. So and he because he says his response to Remy is that's not how it works. It is right. what it is, right? So there are just right. these moral laws that you yes. have to follow, whether they lead to positive or negative outcomes, because that's the way the universe is, right? Right. And Remy yeah. is taking this more utilitarian bullshit. It, you know, what matters is, how, how is it helping the right people? No, I will note that Ed Harris just knocks this scene out of the <laughs> <Yeah>. stadium. <laughs> this is Ed Harris just going fucking gonzo acting, right? Right. And, so, and he's, so... uh, he he tells this story about planting evidence, right? Yep. So he's basically like, I don't, I don't give a shit. You have to take a side. I'm on the side of kids. He tells this story about planting evidence on this shitty dad who whose kid was just trying to get uh, affirmation for doing math tables, even though he lived in this cockroach rat, rat infested shithole. Right. Uh, importantly, Remy says that they got the information for this from their man, Ray Lekansky, right? Yes, who, so who this, couldn't rat people out fast enough. Right, and this will, we don't, if, I mean, the first or second time I saw this, I don't think I, I made sense of what he was saying right here, but this later this becomes important. Right. Because and if so, we remember, he said he didn't know Ray Lekansky. That's right. Yeah. And so Patrick asked him, was, was that the right thing to plant the evidence? And right. then Remy responds, fucking A, you got to take a side. Right. You molest a child, you beat a child, you're not on my side. If you see me coming, you better run because I'm going to lay you the fuck down. Right. Easy. So, yeah, so Remy's on the side of... Uh, everything's for the good of kids whatever helps kids is the right thing whatever hurts them is the wrong thing yes and, and then, then remy remy asks him you know would you do it again that is clip corwin earl and then patrick says no and then remy asks him well does that make you right and patrick says i don't know i don't right. know and th- right. th- this is i think patrick's view about these things is uh, so, so, some some kind of humility. He doesn't know, and he says this at the end too that he doesn't know. 
Mm -hmm. So he doesn't know what the right thing is. He, he's sort of the confused person who realizes that it's a really complicated world and it's a complicated question. Right. And, and Remy is, is very much committed he to is, this Old Testament view yes. of justice. He's on the side of the angels. When you're on the side of angels, you can you know, violate uh, law, legal human right. laws yes. right, for the greater good. That's right. Um, so then we, we caught to a funeral. So it turns out that Nicholas, his partner, died from the wounds of the shooting. And we, we go to this funeral, Patrick and- One important detail, as Patrick's walking in this funeral, uh, a random officer comes up to him and says, nice job on fucking Corwin Earl. So we get the idea here that everyone is happy with yes. Patrick, except for Patrick. Patrick yes. feels this ambivalence and this shame, right. but all of the other officers are like, yeah, that's, dude, You, if you get the opportunity, you kill a pedophile. Right, you did the right thing. And uh, so he has this brief conversation with uh, uh, Remy where he asks him what, about what he said last night and I've been thinking about it and Remy tells him to fucking forget it. Mm -hmm. And then Patrick's like, you know, what if I can't? So Patrick is still dwelling on this. Remy wants him to just completely forget it. Although it's not clear. It, it doesn't seem that Remy knows what he's actually dwelling on because right. we, we know what he's dwelling on is why did Remy lie about not knowing Ray? Yes. And yeah. that's when uh, uh, Patrick sees this other cop who was one of his friends, the guy who actually plays uh, Omar, Omar in yeah. The Wire, and, yeah. and asks him, he wants to talk to him about Remy. So, so the guy says, you have to buy me dinner. So they go to this dinner and Patrick's asking him about Remy. And we find out that Remy married a prostitute, for one thing. Yep. <laughs> and then and that captain about that. Captain Doyle brought him in in 1972, so he's been there for a long time. Right. And, that, and we also find that uh, Remy knew that Cheese got robbed before Cheese even knew that he was robbed. Right. So, so um, Patrick's starting to put this together. Right? That's right. He's starting to, oh, well, as it turns out, it's only a blinkered view of what really happened, but he's- right. He's putting together that they that uh, Angie and he and Angie have been lied to. Yes, by Lionel and the others, and so he calls Lionel at this point, right? And he says that they need to meet with him because they know like the bullshit's going on, and they're going to call the police otherwise. And we get this kind of, I think, montage before. Yeah, before they're at the bar. Where it starts to tell us kind of what Patrick is thinking happened, right? Yes, and it's also this conversation between Lionel and, and Remy. Remy, where right. Remy's telling him, you leave your house and you're an enemy. You right. know, we take our secrets to the grave. Yeah, you die with your secrets, right? So now we know that there's this long-standing relationship between Remy Brissant and, and Lionel McCready, Right. And they find out when they meet with Lionel, who ends his 23 year streak of sobriety by having a few shots and he starts to tell them what happened. Specifically he... three cutties and a tall boy. I don't know <laughs> what that is, but don't it's, know either. Uh, right. A lot of alcohol. 
so the way he tells the story is basically that Remy, he and Remy decided that they were going to abduct Amanda or they were going to take Amanda because Helene was such a terrible mother and they would get the money. Everybody would get paid on time and Amanda would have a few fun days or whatever. No big deal. Nobody gets hurt. And it was just this tragic accident that she ended up falling. Yeah. So they would, in, in the scenario that Lionel lays out, they would only take Amanda for a few days. Right. They would get paid for it. Amanda would have this nice vacation and then Helene would have her daughter back. And the idea was, uh, as he's telling it, is maybe Helene would have would change would learn a lesson too. Yes. yeah and yeah. he tells this story about how helene and Dottie were watching amanda they went to the beach it was 100 degrees out they left her in the car to smoke some jays with some guys and by the time they got back a couple hours later and and she amanda was so hot she felt like a roasted chicken basically and yeah. this, again telling you giving you more information that uh, and also the terrible yeah. mother and Lionel is played by Titus Welliver, best known for his role as Bosch on yes. the, the eponymous Amazon series. And he does a great job in, in yes. this scene. Yes, it's very well done. Actor. Yes. And then somebody with a mask comes in yelling that they're basically they're going to rob the place and telling people to shut up and quit talking. Yes. And specifically starts looking at Lionel and saying, you know, what are you saying? You know, you better shut up or whatever. Yeah, you like to run your mouth. Right. And then we get the sense that I, I, I don't know if I, I don't remember who I thought this was the first time, but it seems clear that Patrick realizes that this is Rennie Brissant under this mask. Yes. Who's getting angry at Lionel for what he thinks for divulging what happened. Mm -hmm. And then Patrick starts yelling out loud amanda mccready was taken by rennie brisson and brisson's getting confused at this point and lionel's yelling at him i told him and what we realize is that he told him he's telling rennie that he didn't tell him the real story right right, right. that that the the secret is still safe and brisson realizes this and kind of puts his gun down uh and then the bartender yeah shoots him twice in the back yeah so he takes two shots through there's a there's a chase scene um whatever but we end up on a roof where um remy's slouched over against some some windows or something on the roof and uh patrick i think yells at him or says something to him and yeah. he's like what did you do right? right so patrick still thinks amanda is dead and he's trying yes. to figure out how did this how did this happen and then remy brissant's last words before he passes away are i love children yeah he, he passes away in this sort of uh beautiful sunsets just beginning to break over boston and we see him yeah and also remy's so hard-boiled that as he's dying on the roof he makes the crack that bartender wasn't fucking around, <laughs> yeah. was he? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so Remy's dead. Then we caught to Patrick's getting interviewed by the police who think he was in on the conspiracy. Right. And right. he's saying, no, I, you know, I, why the, 
why would I be in on this, whatever, you know, and that, how did you know about this? And he's saying that he knew because of all of these details and also because he read the transcript. Yeah, the police showed him a transcript call. of, it was either Cheese or Chris imitating Cheese. Right, and and the, cop, and the cops ask if it was like a 911 call and he says, no, this person called Remy Brissant and it was recorded and they have the transcript and they, they tell him that they don't record calls that come in. That's right. And, and then he, he acts as though he must have been confused yeah, because he doesn't missed. want them to know that he knows something now. Right. But now he puts everything together. Right. This is when we, we figure out it was like uh, Remy shot Chris Mullen because, yep. you know, Chris knew too much. They took him out. He realizes that Amanda is in fact not dead, but that they actually plan to permanently kidnap her and give her a new home. Namely so, with Jack Doyle. With Jack Doyle. So this leads to the the kind of final confrontation, if you will, where right. um, Patrick, Patrick is driving with Angie to what we what we find out is Jack Doyle's house, and she's not happy about but she she seems clearly not happy about what they're going to do and asks him if he's sure i think and he says no like basically he's not sure but he's going to go there to to see what's going on he walks she doesn't come with him he asks her to come with him she doesn't want to Mm -hmm. so he walks up he sees jack doyle outside and then we see amanda running out of the house so now we put everything, this is when we put everything together as the viewer, we're finally realized Remy and Jack and Lionel were all in on this. B was not to yes. uh, kidnap Amanda and give her a better home with Jack Doyle. Yeah, to person to permanently abduct her, right? To Correct. adopt her, put her in a different and home. And then Jack, Jack says to Patrick, now you know. Yeah. Right. And then they get into the dialogue in which the major moral conflict is something is adjudicated, if you will, um, because Jack is saying, you know, she would have a better life here. Basically, like this is the right thing to do to let her stay with me. You have a chance to do the right thing. If you don't, you're going to regret it. And he also says, um, what else does he say there? When he makes a point of uh, letting Patrick know that maybe right now at his age, he doesn't realize it. Oh, right. But when you're older, when you're my age. uh, Oh, yes. But I know what I was going to say is that he he says that the reason that Patrick hasn't called the cops yet is because part of him thinks that it's the right thing to do is just to let Jack keep the child who's in clearly in a more loving home. And it's that clearly illustrated that Jack and his wife care a lot about the kid and are providing a better home for the kid. Yes. Um, but then- Patrick retorts that he can't do that, that yes. he's not, that he's not going to do that because what he would regret is having to say he's sorry to a child or to an adult who asks him, why did you allow the kidnappers to keep me? You knew and you didn't bring me back to my biological mother. Yes, and that that's the kind of important point of uh, Patrick's retort to, to Jack. So he, he says, you know, like the, 
you know, all, all of the snacks and, and the outfits and the family trips don't matter. Right. Right. They, they stole this girl, uh, Patrick knew it and he didn't tell her about it. He, he, he didn't do what he promised that he was going to do. And then right. Patrick says, and maybe that grown woman will forgive me, but I'll never forgive myself for doing that. Right. So Patrick's making basically the argument that the biological mother, that's just like, that's how things work. That's the law. That's the, that's the thing to do. You can't make these arguments about, well, the kid's better here. And importantly, this it actually turns into a class debate. Yes. Because when, I mean, so he's going to do, he, he goes back to talk to Angie Yes. And she's upset and she's she's like, I saw her, she was she's, happy. Yep. I don't know how she saw that she was happy from her position, but she right. claims she did. But <laughs> um, yeah, but it, so Angie makes what is the utilitarian argument as well. She's, right. she's better off, she's happier. And then Patrick responds, why? Because he's got money and he makes her sandwiches. Right. So there's there's this kind of a cultural and class kind of argument creeping into here right and then that also patrick says i think importantly you can't ask me to do something that you know i can't do right like right. he feels that he doesn't have a choice in this matter yeah and then so angie lets him know that if he does make the decision to call the police she, she will hate him out, and their relationship out. is over. Right? right. So again, Angie's there to play the foil and she's going to be out if he does this, but he's going to do this because it's the right thing right. to do. Yep. And this obviously uh, follows upon his executing uh, the other guy and feeling bad about it and saying that that was the wrong thing to do even if it had maybe better consequences in right because he also he does mention that to jack that look if you had a problem with this yes you, you should social services right right so, you don't get to play god because right. you have you know money and and a, a more loving environment or whatever so again patrick's doing patrick's now doing the uh he's committed to the deontological yeah, uh, which is it's a common, I think, common trope in the noir literature and noir film is this kind of code that the detectives yes. live by. Right. As uh, I mean, the best example is the Maltese Falcon, where Sam Spade turns over right his woman because he knows she committed murder. Right. So in some ways, you could almost read Angie Gennaro as a deviation of the femme fatale who's attempting to seduce our hero from the code, right? Yes. Yeah, that's but right. I think it doesn't She's work. the 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 Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Exactly. So she, she's the, the <laughs> she's the last temptation that the hero has to overcome to do the right thing i think the problem here is that it's mostly michelle moynihan's just not a great actress so there's not a lot of gravity to her performance and i end up just finding her kind of more annoying than seducing and i find it actually makes me like patrick's decision more not to not to feel there's a greater dilemma 
Yeah, because she does kind of have a, a condescending, right, I'm better than these people attitude. And I think it's perfectly okay for people like me to play God and come in here and steal children from their biological parents. Yeah, and that is interesting because we have a combination of the deontological versus utilitarian principles and class criticisms or class conflict, right? Because yes, it's it's not just that Angie is a dedicated utilitarian or something. It's also that she has these class prejudices and believes that people of the upper class are better than people like Helene and therefore more fit to raise the children and should be able to because it would be better for Amanda. Yes, and and so and, and Patrick be, is the only major protagonist who's actually f- grown up in this neighborhood right. and is familiar with it. And so he's not just being a, a deontologist. He's also, uh, you could say, like kind of some sort of a, a guardian of that neighborhood, right? Yeah, of their he, interests, protecting them from these interlopers who think that they're better than they are. Right. He's more, yeah, he's more sympathetic. He, we got this sense that he did have some uh, empathy with Helene and therefore this isn't just deontological it's also this connection to the community and to the people that Angie does not have so he he calls the cops the cops come and take Amanda from Jack and we we find out that uh, well I think I, I don't remember if we're told that he goes to jail or whatever but the the end so but that's not the end. So you, yeah, you that's could, the penultimate scene. Yeah. Right. And you, you could end it here. Yes. And it's great that they did it because again, this is Ben Affleck and, and the scriptwriter, but ultimately Affleck has the say here because he's the director, makes the decision to make this even more ambivalent or make a viewer more ambivalent than they may have been. Yes. Now we, we see there's a scene where we see kind of contrived in which uh angie is still in the house and we we realize that she's left patrick whatever okay so she's left him but then the movie ends with patrick uh talking to at her apartment helene who's getting ready for a date with somebody who saw her on some show Mm -hmm. and she's uh you know same as she ever was right right talking with like the sort of sensibilities of her class etc and also she patrick asks her who's does dotty or she says dotty's gonna babysit for her and patrick asks, does dotty know that and then helene laughs and says she will in like five minutes and she's drinking a beer at this point getting ready for this day and then uh helene says kind of casually unless you want to babysit for 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 me and Patrick agrees to. Yes. And then as Helene walks out for her date, she doesn't even give Amanda a hug. She right. really just seems uninterested. Very uninterested. And then we get Patrick sits on the couch with uh, Amanda. And Amanda has her doll. Patrick right. looks at her and says, is that a Mirabelle? And then Amanda says uh annabelle right so we find out that this doll 
that is her like the literally like the most important thing in the world to her her most important object her mom doesn't even care enough about her throughout the entire film to know the actual name of the doll and had butchered it and called it Mirabelle right Right. and yeah so and, and we have this scene where Patrick and Amanda are separated there's great distance between them watching the television and that's how we end realizing that Helene didn't give much of a shit about her daughter it's shown to us and it's revealed by this lack of knowledge about the doll and Patrick is stuck (laughs) you get the sense that we're this is like the scene of this is the reality of Patrick's decision this is what happened because of it. Now she's with her mother and her mother really doesn't give a shit about her. And Ben Affleck saying, you know, think about it. Was this actually the right thing to do? And you can see that you have a, so, I mean, because the story, because Patrick's basically the hero of this story, you want to believe and you're prone to believe that what he did is the right thing to do because that's just how, storytelling works the, right. the character whose perspective you take you you generally sympathize with that character right so they go out of their way to yes. put on the screen to make it difficult for you to agree with patrick's decision right, right? And, and i saw a, a one critic compared this to million dollar baby because there's it's a morally there's a morally challenging question at the heart of the film and million dollar baby uh eastwood plays a trainer who helps an injured boxer commit suicide and and that's the moral like the moral uh, debate at the center of that film but as the reviewer noted in million dollar baby eastwood goes out of his way to make the decision seem as though it was the right decision the whole film set up to make that case whereas in gone baby gone affleck actually goes out of his way to muddy it up and make it very unclear that it was the right decision which i think illustrates affleck's intelligence here he he's making a very challenging and in some sense, viewer unfriendly film because it ends with this painful realization that that the that Helene's even a worse mother than we thought, mm-hmm. and th- that makes Patrick's moral decision unfulfilling. Yes, or you could yeah. argue it's unfulfilling. Right. Not only is she a worse mother than we thought, but we at this point it, it's clear she has no ability to change right Right. she's not going to change yes and and then that harkens back to the opening narration right that it's the the things that you can't choose that make you who you are she's just a product of the neighborhood her her family right and that's just the way that it is yep and then we're left wondering well is that was it just the way it was for patrick right He's just a product of that neighborhood. He's going to side with the neighborhood. That's just how it is. Yeah. So there's that class angle to it. And then there's the more abstract philosophical debate that one could have. And in fact, I think if 
one were an intro to philosophy professor setting up a debate between utilitarianism and deontology, which is a common debate that people set up, this film would be a very good way to set it up, right? It's so, uh, I mean, it is the center, the, 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 at least it's the, the sort of intellectually obvious center of the film. I think the class stuff is also there and is a very important theme, but this is sort of the, the I, I, what would you say, the, the more gaudy theme, the, the one that's in your face, that's the challenging theme is the deontology versus the utilitarian perspectives. Yeah, and then there's a way out of that with some rule-based utilitarianism, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, there, there is indeed. and and plenty of philosophers have debated this topic and will continue to debate it. In the context of the film, the debate, of course, is one, you know, and it's, it's good that um, also you do end up, I think, sympathizing with Remy. So, yes, so there yeah. is, I mean, Remy's a hard ass, but he's somebody you do think you would want on your side and you can see his point of view. He's not, morally bankrupt i mean he he does care about children and he thinks he's doing the right thing yeah and you can see jack's point of view i mean he yes. he lost his daughter yes he really wants to you can see that he and his wife are very devoted to amanda they really do want to give her a better life yeah, and actually that that reminds me there there's this theme with jack doyle's character that could be like a third grade theme of the film I think if it had been played a little differently and this is where I think again Freeman's choice here to to play the character as he does makes it a little less prominent or interesting than it could be because one of the major points as you noted is that Doyle's constantly trying to say he's doing it only for the kid right and at the end he says to Patrick Nobody knows why they do what they do. We all look at life through our own window. Right. right. And he does confess, you know, maybe I'm doing this for me. Yeah. At, at one point here. So there's this kind of theme that he's the representation of that actually people don't know why they do what they do. And they're off, they're just trying to rationalize it because they're looking at life through their own window, which right. is, is an interesting theme that you can see play out. But it is, and also then you have this interesting, I guess, dilemma with, with Jack's character of was he doing it because he cared about right abstractly about children and right. justice or because he wanted to replace his own yeah, child and fill wanted. that need. Right, exactly. And, that, and that's a theme that, yeah, it's, it's just, I think like Freeman just makes this character, this kind of unbelievably avuncular stoic or something just you know it's just I just think to myself what if you had had like either he decided or you had a different actor who played it as a much more emotionally fraught character a character who lost his child and is aware of the depths of depravity of humanity and aware that his own motives are often uh, uh, hidden from him, right? Because you could have that. I just think because, so Brassant actually illustrates that better because he's played by Harris who, who gives a more volatile performance. Whereas again, Freeman, I, I just think it's one of the weak points in the film is just the way 
Freeman decided to go with this or yeah. Affleck wanted him to go. I don't know. Also, it's interesting because Brissat is a character where his motivation is transparent, right? Well, he really thinks it is. I, I think that it is. I think it's just Brissat at some point was just like, fuck it. I'm not, you know, I am on the side of justice. Uh, I'm going to throw out these legal niceties and do whatever mm-hmm. it takes to further actual justice, not legal justice, but real transcendent justice. The other characters, their motives are a little bit less. Like, so Patrick, is he doing this because he's trying to redeem himself for clipping Corwin Earl, right? Is that why he decides that he has to go Mm -hmm. this route? And then, you know, obviously with Angie, we have the, is she doing this for the sake of the child or out of this more condescending kind of view that she has of these, these kind of people, right? Right. So, so it is interesting. I I do. Yeah. Brissant's kind of a fascinating character. Right. Well, he's, he's more id, right? He's just, he is what he is at this point. Well, well, I mean, I wouldn't say he's exactly id because he's devoted to a righteous cause. He's like pure super ego. He's, yeah, yeah. he's taking uh, sides. He's pure morally righteous. That's his motivation. And if you went that route, again, how much better would it have been if Jack Doyle was played by somebody who illustrated the, the sort of uh, darkness of his own motivations to the audience better? Because Freeman's playing Fre- Freeman here, playing this guy who is... You, you just think he's so noble and, and he's, you know, he gets mad, but when he gets mad, it seems to have nothing but purpose to it. Mm-hmm. You don't get the sense of a, a turbulent man who has this wounded past and who's fully aware of his own maybe dark motives. Um, I, I just, I wish that that would have come out better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think he he he's too noble and one dimensional yeah and, and then then that makes it so when you get to this last scene where he's does admit that maybe i'm doing it for myself but from the viewer's perspective you can't believe that you're like of course he's doing it for the right reason yeah and it's also it's interesting that it, it it in some ways it kind of sucks the emotional impact of the last uh, that's the, the penultimate scene or, or close to penultimate at least um, the scene with Foreman, Freeman and Amanda it actually kind of ends up sucking any emotion out of that because Freeman you, you just don't feel the the depths of his desire to have Amanda here yes like, like, I didn't I wasn't that moved by that scene I, I mean I was intellectually riveted by it but I wasn't emotionally moved by the scene in which the cops take Amanda. You could imagine again, somebody looking incredibly wounded and and almost destroyed. This was their last chance for this happy ideal of a family that they had and it's completely ruined now. Yeah, agreed. Another way that you could play that that kind of last, you know, uh, penultimate scene would be if you had a better actress than Michelle Moynihan, you could just have the confrontation be between Patrick and Angie, 
and yes, relegate Jack yeah. to kind of this, uh, you know, we just observe what happens, but there's not actually dialogue between them. Right, right. Right, instead of having the two confrontations that Patrick has. I think the two work, and it would work better if, it, obviously it's not that Morgan Freeman's a bad actor at all. He's a su su supremely gifted actor, but I think he's probably miscast here and or Ben Affleck just I don't know what he does with his direction here maybe he didn't want to direct Morgan Freeman because he's like that's fucking Morgan Freeman you know, right like, you know who knows right whereas with with Moynihan it's, it's much easier to know what happened it's just like Moynihan's a fine actress but she's limited and she's not she, she does not have the chops of uh you know, Titus Welliver or of Casey Affleck or of Amy Ryan. So she pales in comparison. Yeah, she looks like she's out of her depth when right. you're playing against these these forceful uh, right. and just and and who the person actors. who plays B McCready does a, gets a wonderful performance. Dottie is wonderful performance. Really, everybody in here except for jack's uh, uh um, freeman giving a, a you know just to me an off-key performance and then moynihan just a little bit more lightweight all right so let's just do a, a kind of final assessment and then we'll conclude so how would you rate it one to ten yeah it's tough because it's such a rewatchable film for the moral dilemma and it is pretty well directed i i again i would say that Affleck lacks total visual control, but some of the editing is really interesting and, and compelling, and it's very well directed. You know, it, it, it's clearly in, the the director has command or uh, of the material here. Um, so I, I think I would give it an eight. Uh, the the script is is very good. The the moral dilemma is really interesting. Affleck makes the important decision to make it even more compelling and intellectually challenging. In fact, he does that whenever he can. Amy Ryan's performance stands out as just spectacular. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those films that stays with you. So anytime you get a film like that, that's good. Now I would say it, it's not in the masterpiece realm because I think I personally, I think the structure is messed up. The, the, the going from the first half to the second half is really unfortunate. I would have liked 15 minutes of footage there that tells me instead of, or I mean, that, that shows me instead of tells me what happened. I think that would have been more powerful. I think going with realism all the way through would have worked better and would have made it a more compelling film. And I just, I, I think Affleck's not quite, in the league of great directors at this point. Um, and so the, the, the visual style, although again, very good, you know, seven out of 10 or something just for the visual, it's not expert. Yeah. And you know, who can blame Affleck? This is the first film he directed, which, yeah. you know, it's a, and it's, a, it's an achievement for a first film. Yeah. I, th I think I would go with an eight. I think it, it shows that Affleck is a, not just a talented uh, screenwriter but also a talented director uh, the visuals are interesting not not as accomplished as other directors I agree with that 
the I, I suppose you could see the the decision to create basically two films and have the narration there as an ad hoc solution to what was presumably some uh, post-production issue right that they didn't Possibly, know how to yeah yeah maybe how to put it all together I don't know if that's true that's speculation but... yeah that's speculation but it, I could I could see that um I for me the the most glaring flaw is Michelle Moynihan that Angie character is the the most off-putting character to me yeah Um, she just doesn't bring the kind of gravity to it that I would like to see from uh, I mean she's basically the co-protagonist but really just is in the shadows right most of the time yeah Um, so you you know you wonder how much of that is the script didn't do her didn't do her any favors, or how much is they cut scenes from her because they just weren't they weren't as good as other scenes, right? Yeah, judging by wonder all, that. Uh, right, other uh, films and the first season of True Detective, uh, I just don't think Moynihan can bring it. Oh, I agree with that. I'm just. Oh, you mean if they had more material with her that they decided to cut? Yeah, because she ends. You know, it ends up when you 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 know the finished product. You think like the script does her no favors, you know. But I do wonder, was there more? You know, did she have 15, 20 minutes more footage that just ended up getting cut because yeah, she can't bring it the way that the other actors can. And so, of course, if you're if you're in the editing room, you're like, I want more with Ed Harris, more with Casey Affleck, and then less with Moynihan. And personally, I I enjoyed the artificial Erzatz dialogue from uh, Casey Affleck. I think I, I think it adds something to the film. It's it's very gritty and realistic, has a lot of graphic scenes, and that adds a little entertainment to it, perhaps. So you're not entirely immersed in this. Yeah, but you know, so it's interesting because what I was thinking about is um, Chinatown, which is mm-hmm. a neo noir, of course, probably the most famous neo noir and the best neo noir, in which Jake Giddis really doesn't use. I, I mean, he has a few things where, but he does. They don't. They they're Polanski when the scriptwriter, who's uh, I. I that's embarrassing that I can't remember the scriptwriter because it's one of the great scripts in the history of film, but they don't do that with Geddes, right? And I actually think that I, I, I really like that they, they had the restraint to do that because yeah, it's entertaining to have the detective pop off at the mouth eloquently, but I actually think it just ends up detracting from the realism of the film. Yeah. Because we, we, yeah, we always feel like, even though what's going on in the actual, like on the film is, is Patrick doesn't get it. We always feel as though he's going to figure shit out and that he's in control. Right, because this ends up making him, unlike Jake Giddis, who's in over his head and we feel that he's in over his head. This, the, the, the cockiness and the, the eloquence of his attacks on other people ends up making us think he's a badass who's going to figure it out. And he's mm-hmm. not really worried about this because he has the balls to talk shit to a Haitian criminal who has a gun in his face. Right. And also, 
so the penultimate well i guess it's not tech it's anti-penultimate scene because i think we have the scene where yeah we have the one in the hotel or the apartment but also like you you could imagine if you had uh portrayed the relationship between patrick and and angie in a more poignant and and deft way that the fact that he was losing her from his decision would make the decision seem even more important and you could respect him more for making it right and but that, and that's why i think there was just this tension between trying to make patrick this real character who's in over his head and trying to make him this cocky badass right and and when yes. you go the cocky badass route also his relationship now part of this is moynihan's problem too but that relationship and the loss of the relationship becomes less meaningful yes it, it be it it's uh, more of an act of like virtuosity from Patrick. Like, look at how much of a badass I am. I'm just going to sacrifice this woman for the code, right? Right. Rather than being like an actual like uh, poignant sacrifice that we know really hurts him deeply. Right. One thing that the film does an extremely good job of, though, is is setting all of the the kind of clues in the first half. Yeah, and then bringing those together, right. and we can see why a lot of these things that we didn't think were important actually are extremely important. Like, yeah. uh, for example, the comment, "I don't know who we don't know who's Skinny Ray. I don't know him from Remy Brisson. Right, and, and the the um, what was the other one that I remember that or they, why they don't want to get the FBI involved, and why yeah. Jack Doyle doesn't want to get anybody else involved on the on the drop. Yes. So all of those things make sense. Yes. And so they do a good job with that. And again, it's a very, it's a very intelligent, intelligently written script. And, and Affleck shows a lot of discipline and maturity in the way he handles the fundamental moral problem in the film. I just think he doesn't show much, show as much discipline with the Patrick character. And you can kind of see this is something you like more when you're 20 and you're like, yeah, Patrick's fucking cool. He talks shit to these guys. Right. And I think the older you get, the more you see it as a, a more restrained and disciplined filmmaker would have toned that back, went for more realism the way Polanski did in Chinatown, even though it's not as immediately gratifying, it creates a better film overall. That's my take on it. And I understand it is entertaining in the in the immediate and you you enjoy it and patrick seems cooler but i actually think that takes away from the challenges in the film because it it would have been better to to illustrate clearly that patrick's in over his head and that he's emotionally and intellectually vulnerable yeah and that he always has this clever soliloquy ready to go right then makes that end confrontation it's just like he's this cocksure here's why i'm here's why i'm making the decision and he's able to back it up with this great eloquence yeah it it probably would be better if he struggled to articulate why he was going to do what he did right and was maybe contradictory or you know just I could, yeah, I could see that working a little bit better. Right, that's why, I I mean, that's why I really think Chinatown is so perfect is because they had the, you can see like with Jack Nicholson's Jake Giddis, you you could have the temptation 
to make him this this sort of smarter than you uh, uh, eloquent badass but they actually avoid that they make him smart but not genius and you know he has some some verbal gifts but he's not particularly eloquent and he's not the kind of guy who would rip up and insult this character eloquently in front of him right that's just not how he's played he's played more like this real uh private investigator and i mean importantly giddis is is sort of indignant about his profession right yeah i make an honest living and patrick you could have had that with him the sense that this is a guy who's struggling right who's probably not terribly educated who came from this neighborhood and he's doing private investigative work and in fact you know another movie that came out around this time that i think is criminally underrated is Hollywoodland, where Adrian Brody plays this private investigator. And he he kind of plays the private investigator I wish Patrick had been. Th- this one where you get the, the sense that he is in over his head. He's not like this cocky badass, although he has some, you know, you need a little bit of that, but not too right. much of it. And you get the sense that like his life is not very pleasant. Yes. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, right? Because basically if we have the view that patrick took this case because he was concerned about money right right and then uh then got emotionally involved in it and clearly is over his head because he's never done a case like this before and he doesn't know how to handle it very well yeah there there's right because it's it is extremely hard to believe that this guy that this is his first big case right he's like with sam spade He's had many cases that are high profile. That's just how he rolls. Same thing with Philip Marlowe, right? They're always, they're in this, they've been in this criminal underworld for a long time. Patrick knows some of these people, but he's not used to doing that kind of thing. So it is a little bit, I mean, a a lot bit unbelievable. Yeah. And they make a point early in the film to, to, draw attention to that right that he right. he's not they've never done a case like this but then you wouldn't know it for the rest of the film if you just cut that out you'd have no clue that they were relative neophytes here yes and the the conversation with with cheese is i think the most egregious <laughs> example yeah that where it's just but even the, the bar scene, it's like totally unnecessary there. It's, it's like you could have played it more straight up and there would be no need for all of the back and forth there. Right? Well, there's a, there seriously is like a more than a little Will Hunting yeah. written yes, into yes, Patrick's is. character where they're just like, right. we need this guy to have these awesome, like awesome repartee and, right. and witty, right. witty uh, comments ready to go because that's yes. cool. Yeah, right, people like that. Yeah, and, and in fact, you you notice though, mostly that's dropped right after the cheese thing. I mean, I, I guess you could say like his his response to Jack Doyle at the end is pretty carefully tailored and intelligent. But before that, you don't really get a lot of that. In fact, the dialogue with Remy, which is much more realistic, I think is more affecting because it's more realistic. Yeah, and I think another potential issue that Affleck has, I think as a writer, uh, and I think this is the case when you watch Goodwill Hunting is the, Affleck's good at writing dialogue and scenes, 
but the narrative propulsion is a little bit weaker than the actual individual scenes themselves, more of like these vignettes that are really fun to well, watch but, and interesting. Right. But that's why I think the, the, that, that middle narration is just a result of that. that yeah, he, that might be right. That, be there's, that, that, yes, he's better at thinking of the individual scenes than the story. So at that point, he's just like struggling to figure out where to go. And I, as a writer, I totally understand this because often I'll have a paragraph and then another paragraph. And I'm like, I like these two paragraphs, but I have no fucking idea how they work together. And that's how it feels as though Aflac is certain in that case and I think they solved that with, with creative editing in some scenes where you yes. get the dialogue over it, but it just feels jarring at that point where he's, he's not able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. So I, I think, yeah, it's a very, very good film. It, it clearly demonstrates Affleck's talent that he's a director to watch out for. Yes, I do. I really like the homage to the old school classic noirs. I like the neo-noir genre. And I do, I really do uh, appreciate this mainstream film that actually has a very interesting intellectual moral dilemma yeah, that you can agreed. debate about for years after you watch it. Yeah, that makes totally. it more than just a, a fugacious film. Yeah, well, that's why I think it, it's interesting because I rewatched Town not long ago. And Town is a much better movie than I had remembered. And it's better than Gone Baby Gone, I think, in every way, except for the plot. There's a little bit less moral meat on it. Although it's still, it's still there's a lot there. It's just not quite, it's so like, even though Gone Baby Gone's technically not as good of a film, it's one that you would rather watch and it has more to discuss. It's interesting. I, I think each of Affleck's films has gotten progressively worse. Well, again, that depends on De if you- Depending on how you- The town is, 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 is better or worse. Yeah. Right. But I agree that Argo's certainly worse and, and it's just a lighter film. It's it's not as compelling. And then I, I haven't seen the last one. But yeah, I, I, neither have I, but yeah. but it seems that there's something of a trajectory there. Uh, right. Ar Argo's an interesting film because it critics really loved it and it audiences it. enjoyed it. Yeah. But it it's there. It's not going to hold up. Like no, it's, it's not a film you're going to say, "Hey, like let's watch Argo." No, you know? it's very clearly it's one of those those uh, incredibly weak best movies of the best picture that is just forgettable, right? right. It, it doesn't last more than a couple of years. And yeah, I haven't I haven't thought about rewatching it since I watched it. I haven't. Been I like, haven't either. I'd like to go watch Argo again. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. All right, so we will be back again next week. Uh, we're not sure what film we're doing, but we will be here with CinemaPod.